Okay, we are, we are uh, focused in the beginnings of a short mini-series. I say short con- con- compared to some of our much longer series, of course. And we're looking at uh, these two chapters in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, we spent one study looking at the prelude or the, or the, uh, the introduction to chapters 2 and 3. But these two chapters contain seven letters to seven churches that were in near proximity to the Apostle John as he was experiencing the visions that become the book of Revelation while he was in prison on this prison island of Patmos just off of the coast of modern-day Turkey, what was then known as Asia Minor. And there were these seven churches, starting with Ephesus and ending with Laodicea, that were in a circular postal route on the mainland, just across from the island where John was situated. And the Lord instructed him in chapter 1 to write the things that the Lord was revealing to him down and to send them to these seven churches. And so he, of course, followed the Lord's instructions and did that. But as the Lord was uh, first revealing this to him, he first revealed himself to John in the vision that we focused on in chapter 1. And as we've started these letters, we're halfway through the the first of the seven letters. Uh, As I had mentioned, we're probably going to take approximately one study per letter. But for a couple of them, I want to expand it out to do a couple of studies. We're doing that for the Ephesian letter. Uh, What we've seen is that there's a similarity of patterning to these seven letters. The Lord speaks in a similar way to all seven churches, but he doesn't speak identically to all seven churches. So the first thing that we learn from that is that churches are different. Uh, there, is, there are no two identical churches, and we're not just talking about stylistic differences, that's obvious, but spiritual differences. So there should be, in every good and true and healthy church, there should be spiritual similarities, and there are, but there are also distinctions and differences because just like every believer is in a little bit different place in their walk with the Lord than every other believer, this is true of churches as well. So what we're, what we're doing as we're looking at these letters is we're considering, and remember as Jerry just reminded us that that this all got percolating in my mind and heart based upon us crossing a a line in our history as a church, which is our 35th anniversary. And uh, just the sense in my heart after sharing that one anniversary message with you that there was more that the Lord wanted to say to us than what I had shared that one Sunday morning. And so what we're looking at these letters in terms of our perspective and approaching them is I believe how the Lord wants churches to look at these letters, which is to recognize these are evaluation letters. The Lord revealed himself as the the high priest in the midst of the lampstands. And just like in the Old Testament, when the high priest in the temple of God served the Lord on a daily daily basis by, by coming in and inspecting the lampstands, and we saw that lampstands symbolize individual churches, He inspected on a daily basis the lampstands. He did two primary responsibilities toward them. One is he filled up what was empty in the lamps, their need for oil in order to have fuel to burn. And then he trimmed the wicks, which is cutting away things that that are going to hinder the, the fullness of the light that's meant to come from that lamp. And in those two things, 
we're identifying there are encouraging elements in these seven letters, and there are critical elements in which the Lord looks at the churches and says, this part of what goes on in this church is pleasing to me. Let me encourage you in that. Don't lose track of that. Keep your, keep your grip on that. Continue to grow in that. Make that even stronger. And then there are critical elements of the Lord looking at the church and saying, I'm not happy about what I see in this, in this area of church life. And this needs to be changed in some way. And how he addresses that with each church is a little bit different. And so what we're looking for are those two elements. What pleases the Lord? What displeases the Lord? And our primary focus is in the, in, in most cases, the very last line of each of the seven letters, but it's right near the end in each case. And that is, uh, let me read it from, again, verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I'm emphasizing the plurality of that last word. Rather than, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Which would then allow us to say, okay, that was the issue with the Ephesians, but that really has nothing much to do with us. Or that was the issue with the the Thyatirans, their church. But that was a long time ago. It's not very much like what's going on with us. In each case, the Lord wants us to stop, pay attention, listen, and evaluate. Does this relate, both the encouraging element and the critical element, does this relate in any way to what's going on in our assembly? And the Spirit of God may speak to us from these seven letters in a way to get our heart's attention in an an area that we might not have been paying attention, in an area that we might not have... Uh, the, the focus that our hearts should have. All right, so with that, I did want to add just a, a brief detail to uh, the study last week. I, as I often do, I kind of ran myself short on time, and I, I real quickly identified what was going on, and I, I wanted just to add a couple of details to that. But let me reread, starting from verse 1, the entire, it's a short letter, the entire letter to the Ephesians, just to get the, the full context. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the detail that I I wasn't able to develop adequately at the end of the study last time was when after the Lord first encourages the Ephesians, he encourages them based upon 
their, their zeal in doing good works, their patient endurance of hardship, just representing the Lord in a difficult uh, social circumstance in the city of Ephesus, and how they were, they were a very discerning church. They, they had in their midst, apparently, at least two, because he uses plural, at least two that had self-proclaimed themselves to be apostles when they were not actually, from the Lord's perspective, apostles at all. And that, that in and of itself should be uh, uh, an eye-opener, attention-getter for us in the reality that in church life, in Christian church life, not just here but throughout the Christian community, throughout 2,000 years of church history, there are those who are self-proclaimed special leaders of God's people when the Lord has not called them and has not given them that kind of assignment at all. And so they have discerningly discovered that those are not true apostles of the Lord. They put them to the test, testing their doctrine, testing their character, and identified them as false and therefore not worthy to be followed. But in all of that, he then turns and gives a corrective word, which is going to be the focus of our study today about losing or abandoning their first love. And then at verse 6, he returns to another word of encouragement. And the second word of encouragement was, yet this you have, meaning you may have lost something, but you still have held a good and healthy and strong grip on this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. And I rightly identified that what that was is, is what we call spiritual syncretism. What that means is combining spiritual elements that don't belong together. For instance, if I said to you, uh, the true gospel is a kind of a mixture of some, some Bible stuff, some Mormon stuff, and some Jehovah's Witness stuff. And if we were to just jam that all together and then make that our message, that would be an example of spiritual syncretism. Things that don't belong together being portrayed as if it represented the Lord's message. And in the church of Ephesus, they were dealing with an issue of spiritual syncretism in this group that had been identified by this term Nicolaitans. Uh, the syncretism they were struggling with was different than what we might deal with in our own culture and society. They had three primary elements from the culture around that was always trying to insinuate itself into the church. One, and I had mentioned this, there was a huge and, and gorgeous temple that was built in the city of Ephesus dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt and also the fertility goddess of the Greeks. She had been adopted by the Romans in the Roman Empire. Her name was changed to Diana, but essentially that's what you're dealing with, the goddess of the hunt and um, this fertility goddess element. So that was a huge part of Ephesian society. I, I had briefly mentioned that in Acts 19, there was even a riot that took place in the city that overwhelmed and stirred up the entire city when uh, those that were, that were followers of Artemis, followers of Diana, were concerned that the gospel coming into the city was somehow going to undermine the worship of Artemis. The second element in Ephesus was emperor worship. So they were part of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was a, a leading city in the wider Roman Empire. And of course, in any city of the Roman Empire, there was always some presence of, at this time in history, 
uh, beginning to recognize the emperor as a divine figure. And so that was an issue that was always trying to creep into the church. Who is actually Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? Because there can't ultimately be two Lords. There is only one. And then the third element, which is also uh, described in Acts chapter 19, was there was a huge amount of occult uh, activity in the city of Ephesus. And uh, when the gospel first entered the city, one of the big things that happened was that many who came to embrace the gospel brought all of their occult books and their, their devices that they used for occult practices, and they made a bonfire and burned them in a public setting. And as a result, they stirred up trouble with the occult community that surrounded them. So these elements, the Artemis worship, the emperor worship, and the occult practices were, were an ever-present issue for the church. That was represented by this Nicolaitan group. All right, so for the rest of our time, let's focus then on what was, with all the pleasing elements in the Ephesian church, what was displeasing to him. And what's interesting to me before we get into the details of it is there's only one thing that the Lord mentions that displeases him. And in a sense, you know, the Ephesian letter, if, if you read this in its context, they have theologically, I think, gotten somewhat of a, a bad rap, a bad reputation uh, because of the one thing that the Lord had against them. And it is a very big thing. It's a very serious thing. But I would, I, I, I'll just say it this way. I would, as a pastor of this church, actually find it a favorable thing if I could accurately evaluate, and I'm not saying that I can, it's only by the grace of God that we can see where we're really at with the Lord in our personal walk or in our corporate walk as a church. But if I could accurately evaluate this church and say, you know what, there's only one displeasing thing in the eyes of the Lord as he looks at Tree of Life Christian Church. I mean, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? To say there's only one thing that he's not happy about. I... Think of, think of your marriages for a moment. If you could say about your spouse, I love everything about my spouse, but there's just one thing that bothers me. Just one thing that bugs me about them. One thing that I'm not happy with. One thing that is an issue that we really need to get resolved in this marriage. But everything else is perfect or everything else is good at the very least. To me, that seems like a pretty good starting point. I would much rather that than to say, you know what? The Lord looks at us and he's got, a, he's got a laundry list of 12 things that really bother him about us. If you're up to the number 12, you're in big trouble as a church. If there are that many things that are, that are off kilter, that are not the way the Lord wants them to be among us. So they only had one problem. The problem of their one problem is it was a really, really big problem. How big was it? Well, let's focus in. Verse 4. But I have this against you. All right, just the way the Lord describes that tells us, okay, big red flags should be going up in the hearts and awareness of the church at this point. He doesn't say it this way. You guys are great you know, I love this about what you're doing. I love this about what you're doing. I, I love what I see among you in this area. And look, don't, 
don't take this too personally, but there's one thing I'm not thrilled about. There's one thing that could be better. He doesn't say, there's one thing that could be better. He says, I have one thing, and then these two words, against you. Now, where do we find that kind of language? That's courtroom language. That's lawsuit language. I have one thing against you. That's divorce language. That's so seriously bad. Things may be good in this area, and they may be good in this other area. They may be good in this third area, but there's this one issue that is so big, so significant in the heart and mind of the Lord that he says, I have this against you. And we know it's at that level, and I'm not off base to use the D word here, divorce, to categorize it. Why? Because eventually he says this in verse 5 at the end of the verse. If not, what he means by that, if, if you don't adjust and change what I am calling you to adjust and change as a church, I will come to you. We were talking last week about at the beginning of the letter in verse 1 when he says he, he reveals himself to the church as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, meaning he appoints visitations for the church, periodic visits of the church. Yes, the Lord's presence is generally with us at all times, but these are special moments of special presence of the Lord when he comes to evaluate the spiritual condition of those that belong to him and name his name. And he says, I will come to you if you don't make the modifications that I'm calling you to make and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The removal of the lampstand means the church will no longer be a church. It may still have a sign out front, though in those days they didn't have public spaces, generally speaking, where the churches met normally at that stage of church development in the earliest versions of Christianity, they mostly met in people's homes. And so you wouldn't have a sign out front. But in translating it to our time today, you know, here we're meeting in a public space. It's a, a building that's dedicated to church use, not our exclusive use. You know, there's, there are two other church congregations that share the same facility with us. But there's a sign out you know, a, a, a sign, a, a landmark sign that's, that's out in public that says to anyone that's passing by, a church is here. And of course, the point of the sign is it's indicating or implying that people that really know the Lord and really represent the Lord meet here. If you want to know what Christianity really is, come into this building and meet when those people are meeting, and what you'll observe is real Christianity. But what happens when the Lord comes to a congregation of people where there is a sign out front that says Christianity or real church, and you walk in the building, and what you discover is the lampstand has at some previous moment in that church's history been removed implying that at some point they may have been a true church, but are no longer. So what are they now? They're a church in name only. Not actually what the Lord says is a church. 
what the Lord identifies as a church. And he's no longer willing to be represented by that group of people. So that's how serious the Lord takes this one issue. It's only one thing, but it's a big thing because it's the essential thing. It's the core thing. So what is it? I have this against you that you have abandoned the love, <coughs> excuse me, that you had at first. <clears throat> this word abandon is an important word and the verb tense connected with it is important as well. It, ref- it, it describes a, a desertion. A desertion. Meaning I was connected to something and then I willfully disconnected to something or someone and I walked away from it and I left it and I did so in the verb tense that's used by the Lord to describe his concern. It's a, it's a permanent leaving. You abandoned the love you had at first so that this church, anyone walking into this church, whether they were a member or not, if they were seen through the Lord's eyes accurately, discerningly, Remember, we we studied last week how discerning this church was in doctrinal issues, which is wonderful. The Lord commended them for that. He patted them on the back for their doctrinal discernment. But they were completely undiscerning about something equally as important as doctrinal purity. And that was they were not discerning the true condition of their heart's relationship to the Lord who is to be the center of the church. They had permanently, at some prior moment in history to the moment they received this letter, to the moment that the Lord was speaking this letter to John, they had abandoned, permanently abandoned their love that they had at first. Now, what love are we talking about? Different commentaries um, try to, emphasize that this must be talking about the love for one another in the body of Christ. And it is true that churches can get into a place where, you know, the the church is somewhat cold-hearted toward each other. Uh, there's There's a church tradition, and I'm talking about a Christian, you know, worldwide Christianity tradition to characterize one particular group. And I, I have no, uh, I have no ax to grind with this particular group, but um, historically, somehow the Presbyterian churches have come to be only semi-affectionately known as God's frozen chosen. Have you ever heard this term before? God's frozen chosen. What what is that describing? Well, the Presbyterians, generally speaking, have a, a good and healthy grasp on the doctrines of election and the sovereignty of God in our salvation. So they're the chosen of God because they understand the principles of election, which are not easy to understand uh, and, and challenging for hearts to understand. But they're frozen chosen because somewhere along the line, with all of the doctrinal purity that they've held on to, they've lost a warmth of heart toward one another. So it is possible that that's what the Lord is emphasizing. He's talking about love that's, that's on a horizontal level between members of the church. And of course, should there be real, 
true, warm hearts. I'm just talking about this room. I can't speak to any other church situation anywhere else in the world. Should there be truly warm hearts toward one another in this room in terms of what we represent being in this room? Yes, of course, there should always be that. But I don't think that's what the Lord is talking about. I do think that that will tend to happen and will be the outcome of what he is talking about. But I think what he's talking about is love on the, on the part of the Ephesians in the heart of the Ephesians toward the Lord himself. Our first love is not our love for one another. I didn't, I didn't come to this church, nor did you, because of how loving, you didn't come here because of how loving I was toward you, and I didn't come because, and don't stay here because of how loving you are toward me. I do appreciate that many of you do love me, but even if you didn't, that, I wouldn't stop coming just for that sake. That's not my first concern. And it should not be my first love. And that's the emphasis here. In verse 4, you've abandoned the love in this key phrase. The love you had at first. At first what? At the first of your life in Christ. This is, this is calling them to just stop for a moment and remember when you were saved. What was it like? Remember when you were first born again. Now, I, I need to stop here and just pause and say, I'm going to describe what first love really looks like. And I, the only way I can describe that is use my own story as an example. Not that my story is identical to yours. All of our stories in coming into the Lord are a little bit different. And in some cases, a lot different. But I do want to emphasize this. With whatever I describe, you should, if you belong to the Lord, if you were ever truly born again, you should have a first love story to remember. There should be some experience in your past of what it was like that was going on in your heart toward the Lord when you first encountered the saving truth of the gospel. And something clicked inside of you and something changed inside of you, not at a, just a brain level, but at a deep heart soul level. And your soul was saved. And then as a result of that, you had a different inclination toward the one who had saved you. What was that exactly like? All right, so I'll just share what it was like for me. This was my story, and I, I don't want to assume, as I said, that it's yours. But as I tell that, let me share from this one passage of Scripture to kind of describe this biblically before I describe it experientially. Turn with me, if you would, back to the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, as he describes what I believe the Lord is addressing in Ephesians 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Now, of course, Jeremiah is not, the Lord is speaking through Jeremiah to his people, but he's not speaking to the church in Ephesus. He's speaking at an earlier time in history, an old covenant time, and he's speaking to his covenant people, Israel. And I'll read just the first few verses of Jeremiah 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. So these are the Lord's words 
to his covenant people now. I remember the devotion of your youth. It's interesting. They were in a situation, the people that were receiving this message, they had forgotten the devotion of their youth, but the Lord had not. He remembered what it was like when they were devoted to him at the beginning of his covenant relationship with them. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. And we understand how the Lord wants us to view ourselves in the context in our relationship with him as as if we're in a, a marriage with him, a covenant of marriage. We're the bride of Christ. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. He's talking about the 40 years of the wilderness journey. And a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, meaning whoever opposed Israel, the Lord opposed them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? In other words, at some point, what started as new, what we would call honeymoon phase quality of devoted love as a bride for her husband that she, she is madly in love with. And then somewhere along the line after that, we don't know how long it takes in each individual case, but the honeymoon has ended now and they have wandered from him and they've gone after worthlessness, and because they've gone after worthlessness, they have themselves become worthless. And the Lord is asking the question, what, what fault did you find in me that led you to turn away from me in that way? So here's my story. I remember, it's a long time ago, I, my, my new birth experience was before many in this room were even born. I came to know the Lord in February of 1979. I'm not going to tell you the whole story of how it came about, but it was a dramatic experience. And in the moment in February of 1979 that I was born again, my life deeply, dramatically, and permanently changed. I would never be the same as I was before. And this is is what characterized my life. I'm just trying to... As I'm preparing this this week, I'm, I'm trying to think, what, what was my life like then? Brand new in the Lord. I'll, I'll tell you what it was like. The Lord mattered more to me than anything or anyone else in this world. He was everything to me. He was more important than anyone or anything. And so what changed? For me, well, what changed is I, I suddenly developed a, a deep interest, a hunger, a desire to consume this book. I started reading the Bible. I, I told you the story of how I got my first Bible. I'm not going to go back through that, but I essentially stole my first Bible. And I just, I loved this book. And I had never read it before in my entire life. And it was like I was on 
this grand adventure to learn the things that were represented in this book. And it wasn't like anyone came to me and said, okay, here are the rules of being a new Christian. You need to start reading your Bible. And I'm saying, no, I don't want to do that. You know, like a little child that doesn't want to eat the food that's good for it. That was not my story. No one came to me. No one said, you have to read the Bible. And and if anyone had come to me and said, you're reading the Bible too much, I would have said, get out of here with that message. I read the Bible probably minimum. Now, I'm not saying this should be your story or, or was your story. It just was my story. Four hours a day. Four hours a day minimum. And on some days when I had more time, I, I devoted more time. And it wasn't a chore for me. I was, just like, I was just like shocked and amazed at the thing. How come no one told me about this book? <laughs> I had read all kinds of spiritual books in my life in the five years leading up to my salvation. And none of them struck my heart like this one. As, and of course, if I had read it five years before, it probably wouldn't have struck my heart. I needed to be born again so that I could get what was in the book and value and appreciate what was in the book. But once I was born again, the, reading the word of God was not a chore for me. So that was the first and biggest thing. Then prayer. You know how at times it, feel, it can feel kind of like a chore to pray? It was not a chore for me. I prayed, I prayed throughout my day, throughout my day. It was like the Lord was with me and I was in a relationship with him. And so I, 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 had, a, I had a companion, a, a real and true companion when I had been alone my whole life leading up to that. But now I was with someone who knew me from the inside and out and was just the most amazing person I had ever met or ever with me. And so wouldn't you want to talk to that person? And I talked to him all day long. It doesn't mean that I was only ever praying all day long, but whatever I was doing, I was praying. And it was no chore to talk to the Lord in that way. Um, I served the Lord with gladness. Meaning, I wasn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't like born again and now you're a pastor. Yeah, I became a pastor years later. But in those early years, I just looked for opportunities to serve because it was within my heart to do so. And so any opportunity that came my way, I was glad to do it. It was just some small way to show my appreciation to the Lord. And no one had to talk me into serving. Oh, is it my time on the rotation again? Oh, me, oh my. It wasn't like that. It was like, please, open the door. I'm glad to serve. I've got time. I've got the inclination. I've got the desire. Let me serve. I shared the gospel freely. Every time I'd interact with someone, I didn't mean I shared the gospel with everyone I ever met, but I was always on the alert, always on the alert. Those first three years in the Lord, it was just like my radar was constantly on whenever I was interacting with people in society around me, looking for an avenue, looking for an open door, looking for the possibility of this soul is probably lost and they need to find their way. And I can point that out to them. And so I freely shared the gospel as the Lord provided opportunity for me to do so. Another one, it's very practical, but it was real for me. I never, and I'll just say it this way, ever miss church. This was way before I was a leader. 
way before I was a pastor. It's probably a lot to do with why I eventually became one. But I never missed church. I mean, I think in my first 10 years of walking with the Lord, I think I missed church one Sunday. And that was because I was like really, really deathly sick, like throwing up level sick. But other than that, I'm there. You can't keep me away. You can't stop me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there. I told this story once a long time ago. I'll share it real briefly again. Uh, I was, this is my first year in the Lord. And I was living up in Topanga Canyon. And I had a car that broke down. And the Lord had connected me at this point in my walk with the Lord to a church in Thousand Oaks. And for those who are familiar with the layout, Topanga Canyon is not right next door to Thousand Oaks. It's a little ways away. I was driving to Thousand Oaks to church and happy to do so because I knew the Lord wanted me at that church. And um, so my car broke down. What am I going to do? I, I could call someone up from the church, but I'm asking a lot. I mean, that's asking a lot. Can you drive from Thousand Oaks over here to Topanga Canyon and pick me up so I can get to church in Thousand Oaks with you? And oh, and by the way, when church is done, can you take me back home to Topanga Canyon from Thousand Oaks? I, it, I just... I didn't feel right about asking anyone to do that. There probably were people that would have done that. Uh, but um, I just took it upon myself. I'm going to get to church. So what did I do? Yeah, I know. I didn't walk totally because that's a long way to walk. Um, I did walk some because I had to walk from where I lived down to the city uh, center in Topanga. There's a little village there in Topanga to the main street in Topanga. And I, I don't recommend this. I'm, just, I'm not saying this is what you should do. I put my thumb out and I, you know, and I, I knew I had to start early to get to church on time. So I went out there at six o'clock in the morning and I put my thumb out and waited and waited and waited and got a ride and made it to church on time and made it to church on time every week until my car was up and running. That took about 10 weeks. So there were about 10 weeks there where I was not missing you can't keep me from missing unless I don't make it there because I can't get a ride. But that was easy for me because I'm praying and I know the Lord wants me at church. And my, my thing is, Lord, if, if, if I make it, it's because you provide a ride for me. You know I want to be there. And if I don't make it, it's because you have some other plan for me today. But each week he provided a way for me to get there. Now, why am I sharing that? I'm not sharing any of these parts of my story to, to make anybody feel unnecessarily guilty. What I mean by that is I'm using my story to give you a starting point to evaluate your own, not past, but your own present. And this was useful as I was thinking back for me to evaluate my own present. Now, I still am committed to church. I, I never miss unless I'm sick or I'm in Africa or something like that. Uh, even when we go on vacation, which has been rare in recent years, but even when we do go on vacation, we generally speaking uh, schedule our vacations starting on Sunday afternoons and ending on Friday so that I can be sure to be ready for Sunday morning. I just don't, and Sandy doesn't either. I appreciate her heart is as strong as mine in this. We just don't like to miss church. But we don't like to miss church for one reason and one reason only. It's not because it's the rule. It's not because you're supposed to. 
It's not because everybody else is going to be looking at you or not looking at you or thinking, why aren't they here or any of that stuff. I don't like to miss church because I love the Lord and I don't want to miss out on where he wants me to be. It's, it's, it's important to me from that perspective. It's a priority to me from that perspective. So with that, uh, let's consider why, why is it that, that first love can be lost? How does that happen? Um, I'll just give you one example. And this isn't the only reason why this can happen, but turn with me uh, back to Matthew chapter 24. And uh, this, I just want to lift one line. This is from a description that the Lord gave in his prophecy of what was going to happen. He, he gives this prophecy in 30 AD. And even though it's very popular, and you've heard me teach this, it's very popular in modern Bible prophecy studies to view what's in Matthew 24 as describing the end of history, the second coming of Christ. That's not what he was actually describing. He was describing a great judgment that was going to fall on the city of Jerusalem within the space of a single generation from the time he was speaking it. So he's speaking in 30 AD. He's speaking about the climactic events of the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And building up to that, he describes what things will be like in the intervening 40 years between 30 and 70 AD. And then this, this one key line in verse 12. Uh, let me read verse 11 and 12 together. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's, it's an interesting correspondence. Some don't really connect verse 11 to verse 12, but I do. I see a connection between those verses. And I think it speaks something to what the Ephesians may have been experiencing. Uh, they had a true love for the Lord at the beginning, a, a warm-hearted love for the Lord, or else the Lord wouldn't have said, you've abandoned your first love. He would have said, you never had a first love toward me. So, you know, he would have questioned the, the integrity of their, their, what they thought was their salvation experience. But instead, he says, you abandoned, you left the first love that you had toward me at the first. And, and why is that? Well, they were struggling with spiritual battles as a church. False apostles, Nicolaitans who were calling the church to spiritually compromise by, by bringing in spiritual elements from the surrounding culture. And those those battleground circumstances can lead to a, a, a chilling effect on the spiritual condition of their hearts because they're, they're subtly, their heart's priority somewhere along the line shifted from their love for the Lord to the battles that they were experiencing and enduring. I thought of an example. Some of you... There might be one or two of you that remember this name. It's not a problem if you don't. It's still a good example. When I was a young believer, I had a, a delivery job where I was out doing deliveries all day in a truck. And as a result, I had a lot of free time as I was driving between stops to listen to the radio. And I would, I would have it on Christian radio all day long. I was listening to the various programs. And I um, learned about a Bible teacher uh, by the name of, he had a radio show. His name was... Uh, 
Dr. Gene Scott. Anybody remember Dr. Gene Scott from downtown Los Angeles? Anyway, uh, that led me to find him. He had a local cable show on TV. And so I used to watch his cable show every night when I eventually acquired a TV. I didn't have one at the very beginning, but I used to watch his show. And he was a really gifted man, a very gifted Bible teacher, very capable Bible teacher. I didn't, you know, today I wouldn't agree with every single perspective that he taught, but, but he was just really effective at, at taking a text and explaining it in a way that you understood what the writer was attempting to accomplish. And I remember, I still remember some of the things that I gained from him going through the book of Hebrews and, and just laying out the book of Hebrews. It was, it was very, very useful and very helpful. Somewhere along the line, Gene Scott got off course. And I, I'll never forget toward the end, he's, he's hopefully with the Lord now, but um, I, I'll never forget toward the end of his television show. Um, I tuned in one night. I hadn't seen him for a while. I tuned in one night, and here was Dr. Scott, not behind a pulpit, you know, proclaiming and explaining the word of God like he was previously. He was sitting in a, a chair on the stage in front of his church, and he had a table set up, and he had, have you ever seen these wind-up uh, monkeys, the toys that, that beat a drum, that kind of walk around, banging the drum? He had on this table, this is in front of his church. Just imagine me doing this one Sunday morning, okay? So instead of a pulpit here, I'm just sitting in a chair. He was smoking a cigar, sitting in a chair, and he had a table set up with about 10 of these wind-up monkey toys that he had wound up. And they're just, you know, banging the cymbals and beating the drum, you know, going around in circles on this table. And he's just staring at the camera, smoking his cigar, and letting this monkey stuff go on. And I'm going, what in the world happened to Dr. Gene Scott? Anyway, I found out, I did a little bit of research and found out what had happened was he had gotten in a battle with the California Attorney General over whether the church was handling its donations properly or not. And they, they, they uh, required him to turn over the list of all of his donors and he refused. And it went into this big court battle that stretched on apparently for years and this last time that I saw him, he was in the midst of this gigantic court battle. What was the result, though? The result was, when I first saw him, he, w- he, was, he was with love in his heart for the Lord, or what it seemed strongly to indicate to me, proclaiming and explaining the word of God effectively. Now, all of that was gone. All of that was not, no longer a heart priority for him. All that mattered was this battle. The monkeys on the table were the California Attorney General and the, and the attorneys that worked for him. He said, that's the California Attorney General and his monkey band. Oh, no, okay, so, all right, you might even have a point about the California Attorney General. I don't know. But what does that have to do with church? What does that have to do with the Word of God? What does that have to do with why we're gathering together? He, somewhere he lost he lost the priority of what church life is really all about. Church life is all about this. No matter what else you take away, it's about the first thing that the Lord patted them on the back for. I'm talking about the Ephesian church. Remaining pure in your doctrinal commitments to the principles of the gospel and God's word. And at the same time, maintaining that honeymoon level love for the Lord in your heart.
So I'll ask the question, what, what should be the story of a true church? Should, should the true church be a, a discerning church or should, should the true church be a loving church? And the answer is, of course, it has to be both. It can't be either or. If you're a, if you're a, a loving church, but no discernment, what's going to inevitably happen? Deception and compromise spiritually. And if you're a, if you're a discerning church, holding to the truths of God's word, but there's no love, what's inevitably going to happen? Frozen, chosen kind of stuff. And neither one is pleasing to the Lord. So he wants us to be doctrinally on point and, and equally as important as that without any, any, or which is more important than the other, we're to maintain a, a strong and warm heart of love toward him as the first and most important thing in our lives. Now, head back, if you would, to the Ephesian uh, passage in Revelation 2. So the Lord is very blunt and direct and calls them out on the issue that they're missing. But then he is gracious in verse 5. He corrects them in verse 4. But in verse 5, he's gracious to provide the solution for their problem. I'm thankful that the Lord always does this. He doesn't leave, leave us blindly just grasping after, you know, how to, you know, what should we do now? The Lord's made it clear we're not in a healthy place. What should we do now? He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, meaning do what I just did a minute ago. Think back to how your story started. Think back to where your heart was at with the Lord when you first experienced his saving graciousness and kindness and goodness to you in the gospel. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then what's that? To, that remembrance is to lead to something. It's not just like a nostalgic trip down memory lane. It's to lead to repentance. Repentance, you know, understand, means a change of mind leading to a change of heart, which produces a change of behavior. All three of those elements in true repentance. And then, what's interesting to me, the final part of the Lord's solution, his counsel to them. You know, if you're going to go to the Lord and say, I need your counsel, and he gives you advice, that's advice you should always follow, and you should follow it carefully. He says, do the works you did at first. What's interesting to me is he doesn't say this. This is what I would have expected him to say. Remember from where you've fallen, repent and love me like you did at the beginning. He doesn't say that. Why? He wants them to love him like they did at the beginning, but he doesn't say love me like you did at the beginning. Why? Because it's not a, it's not a, a, a switch you can easily flip. I've lost my deep first love for the Lord. Let me flip this switch. And now, oh, now I'm just as warm-hearted as I was the first day. I can't do that. I, I can't change my own heart in that way. So what does he tell us to do instead? Do the works you did at first. It, and it, here, this is hard to grasp, but it's a really important principle, getting each thing in the right order. The works they did at first isn't what caused them to love the Lord with first love. Their first love caused them to do the first works. But now that they've lost the first love, 
The only way to regain it is to do the first works that were produced by the first love. It's kind of like, and don't misunderstand this, but there used to be an old saying, um, this goes way back. Uh, have you ever seen in old Western movies the, the horse troughs with the, with the water pump? You know, that you had to pump in order to get water into the trough. Okay, and so there was a thing that was known as priming the pump when the pump has gone dry. You pour a little water into it, which will enable the water to flow more easily out of it. So doing the first works when you've lost your first love is remember the things that mattered most to you and do those things. And maybe in redoing those things like you used to, you'll find your heart being stirred with true love for the Lord like it was back at the beginning when you first did these things. It's kind of like when I counsel a couple that might be struggling in their heart's relationship with them, with each other, and I'll say, you know, do you guys ever have a date night, for instance? You know, do you ever do the things that you used to do when you did love each other? And it's not that the date night will cause them to love each other, but it can stir up the remembrance of what it was like when they actually liked each other. And that can then grow. So this is why I went through the list of the things that, as I'm looking back at my own story, I used to do these things. This is what, what I readily and gladly did. And so if I, I discover that my love for the Lord has been chilling over time to the point where maybe it's even been abandoned by my heart, then doing those first works For me, reading the Bible, serving, praying, um, sharing the gospel, attending church faithfully. Those are the things that I did at first. Those were my first works. And redoing those things and renewing my commitment to those things can only help to keep my heart warm toward him. Now, I said in the pattern of all of these letters that the Lord ends the letters in a similar way with a promise of hope. So let's notice the promise of hope that he gives to this church. So this is a mixed church now. Keep in mind, this is a mixed church. There's there's good stuff, you know, discernment, uh, hard work, uh, endurance. Those are good things. But there's, there's coldness of heart toward the Lord, which is the thing that matters the most. And in spite of that, the Lord is still granting them a promise because these people are his people still and they do belong to him. And he's expecting them to take to heart his word of correction and to act on it. So now he gives them this promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then the promise to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so there's two elements here we need to understand. One is, what does it mean to conquer? And I want to be sure I'm among the conquerors, right? Don't want to be among the, the opposite of conqueror because if you're not a conqueror, you're, you're a victim. You're being defeated by the spiritual forces around you. So how do we conquer in Christ? And, and then how do the Ephesians conquer? They conquer by just remaining true and faithful to the Lord. True and faithful to his word. True and faithful to their marriage relationship to him. And then the promise is, I will grant, this is future tense, not present, future. 
on some future day, and here he's referencing what we call the second coming of Christ. That day, that transition day between our present life and life that will be experienced in eternity. In that day, I will grant the conqueror to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst or in the paradise of God. And this is, of course, imagery of the Garden of Eden. But now, comparing uh, the imagery that's found in Revelation chapter 22, I won't turn and read it again, uh, but it, it references the tree of life in the, in the city of God now, not just the garden of God. And the tree of life is an image of eternal life. But it was aimed at the Ephesians, and it was aimed at the Ephesians for a reason. I just hinted at this in our last week's study, but uh, I'll, I'll take just a moment and develop it here. This, um, this temple of Artemis that I referenced that was the, the centerpiece, the civic centerpiece of the city of Ephesus, had one, besides the statue dedicated to Artemis, a representation of her, there was one great design that was in the temple of Artemis, and it was a gigantic tree. And it was because she was the goddess of the hunt, and they portrayed her in the forest, which was this idyllic uh, paradise-level forest with this great tree in the center of the forest. So what that meant, and by the way, even on the coins, because Ephesus was such a strong economy, they had their own coins, even apart from the, the, the Roman economy. And on the coins, they had a representation of this tree. And so what the Lord is saying is, look, the, the culture around you, this worship of these false gods, they are offering a hope and a promise of paradise if you will worship this false god but it's a false promise and it's a false hope it's based in no reality at all it's an empty promise but what the lord is saying to his people is but what i'm offering is for you to eat of the true tree of life a tree whose fruit once you eat of it will cause you to live forever in restored right relationship with me having fellowship in the garden of God, in the way that God always intended to have with his people. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for this time to study your word and this particular portion of your word. Uh, There's not a single one of us, Lord, that could not benefit from just stopping and taking a moment in our lives to evaluate whether our hearts are as warm toward you as they were in that first moment when you saved us. And Please grant us all the grace that we need to, if not, to remember what it was like to repent and then, Lord, to um, do the works that we did at first so that you can restir in us what you desire from us, a true love for you and your son. Amen. Tim?